basically a one-stop subscription solution for freelancers and clients to manage project-based work. Yes. So that means there's a virtual office that sits in the middle of all of this, which is somewhere you can sign into online, cloud-based. As a freelancer, you can manage your workflow, things like portfolio building, network management, project management, payments, contracts, insurance, accounting attached. And as a client, it's kind of a singular dashboard where you can go from hiring to paying, tracking the whole process all the way through very simply. On the podcast today, we're talking to Jack and Albert, part of the co-founding team at the company Underpinned, who are reshaping the idea of a virtual office. This is Tech Talks, your twice-weekly technology podcast, which features interviews with leaders in tech and a little bit of tech news. On today's show, we've got Alyssa and Haley, who... I'm really, I'm gutted that this is just audio and not visual because you two are trying to hook microphones behind your ears because we're recording remotely and you two look ridiculous. Let's take a picture, let's take a picture. No, I'd rather just not go out there. This this really works as a podcast, doesn't it? Sorry. I'm in Manchester, you two are in London. I'm a bit freaked out. It's raining in London, right? Uh, not raining, but the weather's shit. I'm in Manchester and it's sunny. Like, what the fuck's going on? It rains all the time in Manchester. That's odd. It's not fair, to be honest. The other thing that I realised, uh, <laughs> and this might be kind of slightly odd thing to pick up on, no one's got a face mask on here. Really? Mm. Have there been any reported cases? Probably, but I suppose, you know, you're not getting on the tube and stuff, so people are maybe a little less paranoid. Oh, is there no tube in Manchester? No. How do they get around? Like um, Overground, buses, anything <laughs> cars, how, bikes. How, how do they get around? <laughs> like every other city on the planet? Guys, I genuinely, that's not nice. Don't make fun of me. That's that not nice. Funny. They do have a tram. You see, we don't have that. The trams are cool. We do have trams, but not in London. No. Yeah, we do. Like in Wimbledon. That's kind we of We have trams in, you know, uh, around Croydon and stuff. Yeah. Anyway, this is really rambling, so... <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> we should get into the interview. <laughs> Most random piece of intro ever. Uh, anyway, today's guest, um, they are underpinned. Uh, two co-founders or, or members of the founding team. So we've got Albert and we've got Jack. We'll hand over to the interview and then we'll be back with some commentary and some news later. So today I'm joined by Jack and Albert. You're the co-founders of Underpinned. Are there any other founders? Is it just the two of you? Or is there a third? Or there's a founding team. But right, we're the only founders. So we got we hit the ground running quite quickly. So we started up with the others ready to go. The moment yep. we got our first bit of funding, we had a team of six. Uh, but no, we were the only founders. Yeah, it was us sitting in I think your mom's house, uh, just like talking, coming up with the idea and. And then very much from there, we literally made like probably what actually at the time I thought was a terrible investor deck. And looking back now, I'm kind of like, you know what? It wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was. We found it recently. We were having a little look through, expecting it to be like truly atrocious. And although there was one section which we completely did, yeah. most of it actually remained pretty true. How doing. long ago was that? About two years ago. Yeah, so I think it was last July. Uh, yeah. July 2018 that that would have been first, the first bit of it would have been written. But I don't think it was probably delivered until August 2018 right. was the first time we, we showed it to somebody in full. So let's very quickly uh, explain what the company is that we're talking about. So who are 
Underpinned, and then let's get back into some of the detail around where you come from. So Underpinned is basically a one-stop subscription solution for freelancers and clients to manage project-based work. Yes. So that means there's a virtual office that sits in the middle of all of this, which is somewhere you can sign into online, cloud-based. As a freelancer, you can manage your workflow, things like portfolio building, network management, project management, payments, contracts, insurance, accounting attached. And as a client, it's kind of a singular dashboard where you can go from hiring to paying, tracking the whole process all the way through very simply. For us, we were both working as freelancers at the time and in very, very different sectors. Like Albert was doing high flute and tootin, you know, PR consultancy and business consultancy. And I was literally doing the worst copywriting jobs imaginable in Upwork. And we were getting coffee and a beer every once in a while. And the conversation just kept on coming up about like, I had like eight tools essentially to, to manage yep. the, the freelance work that I was doing. And I was like, this is crazy. It's got to be easier. And it sort of was born out of like ideas that we had worked on before that we we realized that actually it would be so much easier if we just collated the entire struggle that every freelancer has into one into one usable solution mm. all the way from beginning to end. So from actually finding work through to managing work through to getting paid. And then we sort of started building from there. When you say you sat in your mom's house, my mom's house, yeah. At what point did I suppose there's that thing that neither of you sound like you necessarily have a particularly technical background. So no. was that, hey, we've got some wireframes or, or even less than that? Or was that we're building something, we've brought someone in who can actually build something for yeah, us? That, that bit was, so like, neither of us had a, a proper technical background. Uh, Jack's very good with words, but don't give him numbers. <laughs> um, I can relate. <laughs> uh, whereas I had like a little bit more of a background in that area. Not enough I could ever have got to actually developing it, but enough that I could be like, this kind of made sense. So a lot of our initial conversation was around, after we kind of built this idea of what it could look like conceptually, how do we start to make sense something that would work uh, technically? Because a big part of this was, we both had experience in talking to people, freelancers particularly, in, in how to manage their workflow, but very little experience in how can we make this into a scalable product? So yep. one of our first key hires, part of that founding team, um, Lewis Morgan, who, who's the guy, the first guy that came in head of product, um, who was kind of the foundation of turning or my kind of mess of wireframes into something that could actually make sense of products. And that alongside the CCO we hired, uh, Charles, who, who was kind of responsible for choosing the technology and how, what it would be built on and why. So um, you mentioned the virtual office. I suppose, if I'm perfectly honest, it'd be quite useful to just understand how that really works in a bit more detail. Because it sounded like a platform, two people log in from either end, but I don't know, virtual office to me is kind of like Teams and something quite traditional. Yeah. Um, and collect, you know, collaborative working platforms, not what you're describing. It's, it's, it, we actually spent unbelievable amounts of time going through what we were going to call it and how we would, how we would structure the proposition from a marketing perspective. The reason we ended up choosing virtual office was partially because there is such thing as a virtual office, but it's quite an old school thing, mostly mm. within big business. No one really, none of kind of the younger generation of workers knew what it was. Definitely none of the free, freelance sector had any oversight of it. And it kind of made sense for us that if we're making one place that you log in and do all of your work, it's not your home, like it's your office, it's the place you do your office things. And, you know, I guess I'm probably influenced slightly by the fact that Microsoft Office, the idea of your workplace being there. I know we never explicitly said that, but I'm it, sure it creeped in. It was a big factor as well that the majority of the people that we were talking to were very clear of the fact that, like, I'm working from home. I don't have any sort of management capabilities outside of the things that I've learned myself. And we really, really wanted to make that clear that this is a thing that's accessible from, from anywhere. Like you don't need to have 
you know, a team behind you or a or a, a actual physical office somewhere because you have the virtual office. And that was a big aspect in that um, creation of the name too. So in terms of, it's, it's creating a solution for short-term project-based work. Yeah. So there has to be a discoverability aspect. Do, do clients come on and go, well, we've got this project and we're looking for X and then your community go, oh, hey, actually I'm free and I could do this. This is this is actually something we spent a long time talking about because obviously a big part of short-term project-based work is how do you find the worker yeah. and the work. But actually we spent a long time being like, we're not going to be a recruitment company. One, our monetization was never going to be around recruitment. And a big part of this was, if you look at the freelance market, the one, the one type of company that already exists en masse is our recruitment platforms. Um, but they have this problem in short-based work specifically in that these are relatively low-ticket items. The way in which they advertise them often means you have to kind of push people towards lowering their price rather than necessarily increasing their quality f- for competition. So what you then have is, one, a slightly weird environment for work to happen, not a huge amount of support for the freelancer's own development. But the other thing that we found that was happening really commonly was after you start to build a first your first number of, kind of clients, your first few clients, you start to engage them outside of those platforms anyway. So the really successful freelancers we were talking to were doing all of their work outside of recruitment platforms. It was slightly different in some sectors and some people obviously fell outside of that, but a vast majority of people we were talking to and definitely what people wanted to be doing was getting work through their own networks and through referrals. So a big part of building the virtual office was, although there are two sides to it, a massive kind of um, input to how you use the virtual office is learning how to build your own professional networks to get work. So there isn't such a kind of quick instant win of you come in and you get a job, although we are going to be building recruitment into it. Does it plug into existing platforms like LinkedIn or is it entirely self-contained? Not currently. It's entirely self-contained. But one of the things about it is you can manage your external your external links inside. So if you're right. a freelance user and you're talking to a client and they're not an underpinned user, that's absolutely fine. We didn't, we didn't want to make it a closed loop system. Yeah. So you can manage people in and out of the system. As we build forward, I think there'll be more and more work going on within the system. But the idea is that if you come in and you've got your established network and you want to build more efficiency around how you manage it, this will work. And I know that you said you came from two quite different backgrounds in terms of freelance work. How has that influenced the platform? Do you think do you think it is inherently slightly easier for a, for a particular sector of freelance work or is it fairly broad in its scope? I would say that we are aiming for it to be to be broad. We want it to be something that can be utilized by all sorts of different freelancers. Yeah. But just coming from the base that we sort of understand and the people that we know who are our earliest users, it has very much been dedicated to creative and visual designers uh, and copywriters and and sort of the early stage freelancer and then we've started to expand out of there and we definitely have done i think pretty good work in isolating the pain points for specific freelancers and then actually being able to say look here's a solution that we have that will actually make that pain point deliberately easier so people who are in transition from say university or full-time job into freelancing that tends to be the, the market that we are most successfully captivating right now. Yeah, we kind of had a big point of, at the beginning, and this is why we often talk about project-based work rather than yeah. creative work, was that the problems that we were solving didn't seem very sector-specific at all. I mean, from a high-level end software engineer to a 
£20 an hour copywriter, the actual administrative burdens of proposals for work and managing your time and invoices and contra- contracts being a really big one is, is very, 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 very simple. There's slight nuances to IP and slight nuances to the way you do it, but because our project management tools are, we're not trying to compete with people like Trello or Notion. This is much more a kind of admin of your own time. So I think that we we didn't want to be sector specific, but one of the things we noticed when we started was one, the creative sector we we kind of knew the best, and we were kind of a young, vibrant team that had a cool and interesting and engaging brand. So they were maybe the easiest actors at the time. But as we built it out, we were very focused on being actually, one of the first things we did was limit some of the ways in which we used illustration and really creative imagery within the virtual office to make it not be off-putting people who are not from creative backgrounds. Mm. Now, payment, you mentioned, is part of the, the offering. Yeah. And when you're a freelancer, obviously getting paid, it's getting paid itself is kind of critical because if you're waiting on invoices and you know you haven't got a, a, a yeah. full-time salary to fall back on, it's fairly critical. So how have you tried to help improve that payment process and and helping kind of late payment, fail payments and, and sort out that aspect of things for people? Getting paid is probably the most talked about problem within the freelance sector. Yeah. I think it was the recent survey was done that was like 26 and a half billion pounds are held in the British economy in late payments. Not just the freelance economy, but that is a huge figure. Um, so we obviously knew this would be a problem we had to approach. And I think that there's a lot of invoice solutions out there that make it very easy to do invoicing. Yeah. And, and we thought that definitely wasn't enough because just sending an invoice, the, the problem is not really in the sending the invoice. The problem is in then how it is then paid and what's the process around it. So we isolated two things that made it difficult to pay freelancers um, and in order to try and improve them. And then there's a bit of kind of policy and regulatory work we're doing on the side. But the, the bit within the product was... One, the amount of time it takes to pay a freelancer is relatively high. Within the freelance economy, almost all payments are done by bank transfer. So that's copy and pasting, sort code and account number into some system, which then helps you make the payment. There's mistakes that are made. It's a relatively long process. But then added on top of that, you have the fact that whoever's paying it needs to check against the project manager and check against the original contract or purchase order to see that everything fits together and then the payment could be made. And that whole process doesn't even start till you send the invoice. So just from an admin perspective, there's potentially hours of admin to do around making a payment so one of the, the two things that we did on that were one creating electronic payments using open, using open banking so effectively that allows you to do an electronic payment similar to stripe or paypal but with our payment partner bank so effectively you can you can click on a link and pay it but it does it as a bank transfer rather than a card payment so it still fits with the accounting kind of regularity of how people do it um, the other part of that is that it's completely commission free so you're not losing money on making an individual payment so we actually time track the amount of time it would take to pay one freelancer via a traditional bank transfer versus actually doing it with the app itself. And it was something like, well, even being as rapid as I could on the, on the, on the keyboard, which is something that I do literally once a week when I'm paying our contractors, it took me about two minutes from start to finish, maybe a little bit. Or two it was minutes. Longer. It was three and a half. It was three and a half minutes. minutes. Three minutes, 27 seconds was the quickest was you did the it. quickest that I could get it. And it took me less than 30 seconds every single time on, on the, the app itself. So look, obviously there, having a partner like Banked is quite important. Mm-hmm. As a startup, how do you know which brands are going to help build upon your brand and help build? Because in this, trust within that freelance community and credibility and reliability is kind of everything, yeah. right? And you're, you're a newish brand, so I guess partnering with the right brands and building on that is a, is a critical thing. And actually, we're kind of in a lucky position in that there's 
not a huge amount of trust or like liking within the within the within. So because you're starting at a low. No, within, within the traditional payment method. I mean, across across the industry. Because because nobody likes to use them because they lose money. They, yeah, they yeah, have yeah. to pay to use it, and then on top of that, um, companies don't like using it. So so right. most invoicing services that use have the option of doing PayPal or Stripe find that a large proportion of their payments don't use it because because companies are not willing to. So a big part of this was we needed to find a solution that companies would actually be willing to lose mm. use. Sorry. And because it's a because it functions as a bank transfer, it initiates a bank transfer. It's a PISP. Um, it means that you can um, you, you can you can create a bank transfer which people are willing to do. So that one hurdle was already like nothing that works currently could work for this particular type of payment because that's not the way people make payments. So that was a big part of it. The other part of it was we met the team at, at Banks, Brad and Neil, initially through through a mutual advisor in our companies and. What they're doing is absolutely incredible. The way in which open banking is a very, very new thing. So there aren't that many established brands in it. Um, and what what they kind of allowed us to do is because we were both relatively early stage when our conversation first started, we were able to kind of build out the product together. So a lot of the way in which their payment system was built for us was with regards to the fact that we were servicing a particular part of the economy, which they got to learn about. Right, okay. Now, before we uh, started the podcast, you'd sent through some talking points be perfectly honest, I didn't really understand the fifth one, so I'm just going to ask you to explain it. Changing the cultural acceptance of free work for early stage creative freelancers. Free work. So this is, I feel like this is my bugbear. Um, right. This is something that I, I've talked to at universities about. I, I've talked on other podcasts about as well. There is a heavy expectation on early stage, especially creative freelancers, that you will work for free in order to... To build up a portfolio. Exactly. Right, okay. This is basically industry standard pretty much everywhere yep. like i have plenty of photographer friends videographer friends copywriter yep. friends i love friends. For, for the podcast we've used a videographer who came to us through the platform having found the podcast and said can i do some free work to build up your to, yeah. work, to build up his portfolio we said yeah sure all right we'll we'll do it once for free yeah but we will pay you if it's good beyond that and i really like that's awesome like that's exactly the kind of, like even like with the one free payment like that's saying afterwards we will pay you for that is like exactly the thing that I love to hear because it really devalues the rest of the the industry if the expectation is we'll take you on to do this work but you have to do it for free just in order to build your portfolio and so like this is and this kind of goes back to the payment aspect as well that like actually we can the tech we can give them the the, the client side, the, the best tech available in order to make payments easy, but there needs to be a cultural appreciation of the fact that you need to get in, your payment in within 30 days and you need to actually be having have a contract so that you are both safe on both sides just yeah. in order to actually make sure that everyone's sort of protecting the situation. But the bizarre thing is, is that I sort of, I, I have a lot of conversations with people about this and, you know, in my own personal life and in my work life as well, of like oh like you know middle stage freelancers who sort of say like especially creative freelancers who say you know i i had to do free work in order to get to where i am and so it it makes sense to me that the younger generation it's odd yeah why why is that 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 just because an older generation did i was i know it's slightly unrelated but i was having a conversation with my parents-in-law we were talking about paternity leave my mother-in-law was like Oh, we didn't get paternity yeah. leave. You know, what? what? So what? Society exactly. doesn't change. And it's, like, and it's also like, well, just because you had to suffer yeah. through this fairly awkward thing doesn't mean that you know that uh, the younger generation has to too. It reminds yeah. me a lot of the ongoing argument in the U.S. actually around university, right. where it's like I had to pay for university, so you should have to pay for university as well. It's ridiculous, and it's crazy to me, right? Like, and it sort of seemed like this rite of passage that you have to, they like you have to go and do, you know, yeah, yeah. work for people or to build up your portfolio, go for there. But what it means is it cuts 
off a lot of a lot of people from being able to actually do that work. Because if you're coming from a disadvantaged community, you're not going to be able to to survive if you're doing tons of free work on mm-hmm. top of the work that you actually need to do to, to to you know feed yourself. And so, yeah, this is just something that like I I consistently will, will go on about and like I like I find myself like talking about way too much to the point that at parties people are like you're filming at the math stop. <laughs> We're looking at all the decisions. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and yeah, having worked with a few creators, I can understand. Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. Well, look, I know that you guys are fundraising at the minute. Yeah. Uh, when is the close of that fundraise? Oh, God, I don't actually know the exact date. It's 30 it's a, days. It will be 30 days, days from today. End of March. It will be the end of the month. So, so yeah, we're, we're recording this on the 2nd of March. My ambition is that this will be going out about the 10th-ish. I'm not exactly sure off the top of my head because I can't count days. But, um, yeah, you're going to have about 20 days left of... of Raising yeah. funds. Yeah. So we're live on Crowdcube right yep. now. It's really exciting. It's something that I've always wanted to do. I think I hope it's something that Albert's always wanted yeah. to do as well. <laughs> um, we, I mean, it's been a great experience so far. It's basically like building a, a little ad campaign in your in your office. Like it, it's super cool. We've already raised fifty nine percent of the of our goal and have almost a hundred investors so far. So we're really really proud of that. I'm really excited. This is at this stage, by the way. I'm, Hoping that by the time the podcast this goes out, this yeah. goes out yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, no, but we don't want people not to invest. They might yeah, think you're yeah, already there. Look, like even when we're at hundred percent, you're on seventeen percent. Even when we're at hundred percent, there's still an option for overfunding, so there'll be lots of space for everyone. Crowdfunding is a really cool thing because it yeah. means that you can. I mean, when you're when you're, and not many people know that much about raising money for startups, but the legal fees around raising money when you're raising anything over a certain amount are, are yeah. quite expensive. Which means usually you're restricted to taking minimum ticket sizes of usually around 25k is, is most people's floor, but sometimes 50, sometimes some some startups don't accept anything under 100k because there's a lot of money you have to put in, throw around for legal fees and conversations and time that it takes. And crowdfunding is such a cool opportunity to say to people, you can put literally 10 pounds, you can own a bit of what we're doing for 10 pounds, you can be part of what we're doing for 10 pounds, you get invited to our investor events, like yeah, and and even just getting people like our, our mums and you know, it opens it up to people who, who wouldn't normally invest, yeah, yeah. passionate about exactly. it, exactly. Yeah. And look, we have a great community of around 5,000. Well, it sounds like anyone who's yeah. been screwed over and told that they have to work for free endlessly should yeah. definitely pay us. That's logic. I'm just a bit quicker. <laughs> well, look, thank you for coming in and having a chat no, with us and, and good luck with that process. Thank you very thank much. You. Right, okay. Uh, so, I feel this is very topical because um, this is surely the perfect solution for coronavirus, a virtual office. You don't have to go anywhere. Mm, this is true. This is what we will be doing if it gets any worse all over. They've been doing, Dave, was it you that said you had a meeting cancelled because someone was doing an office thing? They're doing a trial run on coronavirus, oh, wasn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, really? I didn't really That's understand cool. that. This is slightly off topic. We will get back to the topic. But yeah, I had a meeting cancelled yesterday because um, a, a client were doing a coronavirus test for two days where they all worked from home and pretended the world had melted, which I don't really understand because surely everyone just works from home. But what do you do? Kind of like have scenarios where we go, well, we've we've messaged our suppliers, but no one's replying because they're all in quarantine. I don't know. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Surely it's just called everyone works from home. Yeah. Anyway, um, yes, so Underpinned, they're offering a flexible solution that's kind of fit for the 20th century, right? Well, 20th century? 21st century. It does, like Overall, there does seem to be a trend for statement of work, certainly across mm, maybe, outside, maybe outside of financial services. But if you think about some of the clients that Harvey Nash work with in outside of creative industries, but 
but nonetheless not in heavy finance. So enterprise, there are there is a much greater prevalence and a much greater interest in let's deploy a team to deliver a service and it's less it's less about the individual. So it kind of lends itself to being that slightly more fluid way of working. Yeah, no, definitely. This could be the future of that market. You never know. And I mean, look, what's really interesting is that they said, we're not trying to be a recruitment company. They yeah. exist en masse, which is interesting because no one's really come along and disrupted recruitment per se. And you kind of go, well, why is that? And actually listening to these two, maybe it's just because it's not needed because the traditional way of finding staff that recruitment companies have provided is less relevant to the working world than it was, say, 10 years ago? I don't know if I agree with you. It's a bit of a chat. Look, we're employed by a global recruiter. It's a bit of a... If they don't need, if they don't feel the need, or that's not a problem that they need to fix, they sat around a table, they sat at their mother's houses, they had beers, they had coffees, they talked about the problems that they faced. Recruitment wasn't really part of it. I just think that was not the problem that they that they thought was relevant. What? Am I, am I prodding the bear? You are here yeah, a little bit, and maybe it's just because of the industry that um, we work in. But we work in, uh, I mean, Harvey Nash specialises obviously technology recruitment. And I do think you kind of need us. And I know that sounds terrible, but I do think (laughs) because, I mean, it's all about networks and relationships and knowing good people who you can't tell a computer's not going to spit out a, what is that, like a a CV of someone that's done a specific project or know someone that's done it. So you know. Yeah, look, I I am kind of being slightly kind of devil's advocate. I I do think that there is a relevance in, in recruiting. Obviously, yeah. But I, I I think also that recruitment firms aren't necessarily placed to deliver a lot of the work that the world is moving towards. I think recruiters, interestingly, Haley, you say there's not as much con- uh, contract work around, but there is a lot of perm work or fixed term work. But it tends to be higher value stuff. It tends to be um, mm. where you're looking at something that has a political aspect to it or a business aspect to it, as well as a te- technology aspect. Where yes, it's harder and it takes a bit longer to find someone. But for these short-term contracts, for freelance work, oh, this is are perfect. we as well placed yeah, to deliver it as something yeah. like this? Probably no. not. Three months and under, I think this would work brilliantly for um, think, in yeah. lots of different markets. Now, what about the fact that they um, they hire a chief product officer ahead of a CTO? I know. That I thought was quite strange. I don't do you, know why do you I find that strange? I do, I, explain why you don't. It's... A question that people have been asking for a couple of years now in startups is how important is the CTO? Because if you think about it, a lot of the technology that you can buy now is um, you spin it up and spin it down from cloud services, for example, as and when you need it, rather than having to have a lot of local technology. So there's an aspect that the CTO is almost like a supply manager going, yeah, we'll, we'll take this bit of capability from this organization, this bit of capability from that organization, but they're not building as much as they had to. They're not running as much as they had to. So there's less reliance on a chief technology officer from that aspect. And also for these guys actually scaling their idea and turning those wireframes into reality was was more, more relevant than the tech capability that they had. I mean, it's worked well for them, hasn't it? And mm. I suppose it makes sense. They're looking at more at what products they can use rather than the technology. That is exactly what they've done, right? Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. This solution they've done though is brilliant and it's going to, this is why so many freelancers will be interested in this as well because mm. they want to get paid at the end of the day. Um, and yep. it's like in the system, it's just it's just solved both ends of the spectrum completely. Then they said they have to be paid in 30 days. Have to be on the system or what Yeah, happens? that's what it said in there. But- I don't know. And to be fair, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting one because getting paid of, of, often – even when you're a larger company, when you're a larger company, you kind of have debtor days and you suck it up, but you've got enough coming through that it doesn't cripple you. And it's often the thing that kind of really makes it hard for a small business. So To survive, yeah. It's it a also, really simple solution as well that I'm surprised hasn't been thought of already. Like, So they've actually smashed it with this idea, really, yeah. that, with that alone. Um, I suppose the other aspect that would be quite kind of fun to talk about is this generational shift or generational penance that just because parents did something one way or the generation before you that somehow you are told that you should also have to do something in a particular way do you think that the fact that the technology is moving so fast it's challenging those norms outside of tech and having big influences on societal stuff beyond its normal confines we should all be doing our own thing. And because technology evolves so quickly, we should just evolve with it. So obviously mm-hmm. we're not going to go do what our parents did. However, uh, you know, when your parents are like, oh, I paid for university, why don't you pay for university? When they brought that up, I was like, you know what? I wish I did. Just so I could, you know, you know what I mean? Mm. I'm old school like that. I don't know. I like the fact that, oh, my mom did it this way. I also did it this way type thing. But when it comes to technology and working space, when he says, what was it about the free work? The older you get in your career or the more you progress in your career when it comes, especially the creative side, because we did a lot when I was working the marketing agency. Mm-hmm. We hired freelancers to do our um, design stuff and they'd work for free for the first two months or the first two projects or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then we carry on using them. And then we'd only start paying them. And the older the freelancer gets, the more experience they get. When the newer ones come in, they do look down and be like, you need to earn your due, you know? Which is ridiculous. Why should you have to earn your due? But also I think there's this thing that technology is, 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 is making it possible to, to afford organizations to provide more flexible, more up-to-date, more modern kind of approaches to work. So there's more fluid working, there's more flexible working, as we were saying at the beginning of this. So... Why can't you challenge maternity, paternity? Why can't you challenge, you know, all of these other, all of these other ideas? And also, I suppose, because there's more and more startups who don't have a whole load of legacy, they can rewrite the rule book on what they look like. And as they're getting bigger and as they're growing, then people are beginning to expect what they provide mm-hmm. across the industry as a whole. Albert, Jack, thanks for being our guests on this week's show. As we mentioned, their underpinned are raising money. Uh, so we will have a link to their fundraising page in the uh, podcast notes below. Anyway, we'll go to our advert break and then we'll come back with a little bit of technology news to round off your week. Once a month, Tech Talks opens The Tuck Shop, a YouTube tech news roundup, which is kindly carried by Disruptive Live. Disruptive Live is the UK's first and only 24-7 TV channel for the technology industry. Stay up to date with all the latest industry news by following our regular talk shows broadcast live across the Disruptive Live website and social media channels. You can also catch Disruptive Live at some of the largest global technology events, broadcasting from London, Manchester, Singapore, Dubai, and many more. Welcome back to Tech Talks. This 
well, today's article, I was going to say this week's, we have two shows a week, so not this week's. Today's article, YouTube is accused of being an organ of radicalization. An organ of radicalization? An organ of radicalization, yes. So okay, let me explain. That? Social media companies have been heavily criticized at the launch of a major report on the far right, which YouTube labeled an organ of radicalization. The State of Hate 2020 report by Hope Not Hate also found the Conservative Party suspended more than 20 officials and activists, including six sitting councillors who posted Islamophobic comments on social media. Yvette Cooper, the Labour chair of the Commons Home Select Committee, said on Monday that when she and others had set up an account to search out, oh, sorry, to search one of the far-right groups named in the report, YouTube had automatically suggested that viewers might want to watch neo-Nazi videos. The problem That's being awful. that if you watch particular content, the algorithm then pushes more in your direction. So the suggestion is that social media, if you start to veer off from the center to just a tiny amount, it'll keep pushing you further and further and further because it will keep feeding you more of that style of content because it thinks that you're interested in it and obviously the algorithms perhaps they're just serving you up content thinking they, they, they don't look at the ethical aspect yeah behind exactly it. and is it's there a way really to interesting... even look at the ethical aspect behind it sorry that that came out awfully isn't this getting monitored though no Clearly not. Well, not not as I mean there is there is radical content on social media. Um yeah. I think Twitter came out, didn't they, and said that they were going to take down anything that was um that was at the extremes. It, yeah. it, it's a tricky one because obviously free speech is one of the absolute core principles of um modern liberal society. Yeah. Um and so where should the controls be? Who decides what's good and what's not? There's obviously some stuff that is bad. Neo-Nazi videos are bad, obviously. But the moment you start introducing control, it, there is that question mark of who decides how, when, yeah. what's the oversight, where's the regulation? Yeah. Um, and do we, do, do, we, do we suggest that the social media platforms should be doing it themselves when they appear incompetent to do that? Do we think that someone should be having some oversight of social media platforms and regulating them. But are we sure that they're going to be competent? Because when we saw Mark Zuckerberg uh, sit in front of the Senate in the US, the senators appeared completely incompetent and unknowing about what they were talking about. Like you say, who who then chooses? <laughs> and how, why are we letting other people choose what we can and can't see? Surely we should have the freedom of knowing exactly what's out there. Yeah. If they were, if we don't see any of the Nazi videos, we never like. How are we going to know that these? We need to be scared of these people. I mean, if all of this stuff, if the content's just gone, majority of people are not going to watch those videos because they're going to go join. You know what I mean? But the problem being that a lot of people are very easily led, and if they get fed a diet of hate, yeah. Yeah, hate breeds yeah. hate. So there's a bit here from from a YouTube spokesperson responding to Cooper's comment. That's a vet Cooper. Cooper's comments. Mm. A YouTube spokesperson said that it had began reducing recommendations of what it described as borderline content and videos that could misinform users in harmful ways. Thanks to this change, the number of views this type of content gets from recommendations has dropped by over 70% in the US and has been rolled out in the UK as well. Whilst we've made good progress, our work here is not yet done and we will continue making improvements this year. 
still huge amounts of content that YouTube would describe as borderline. And they're going to be trying to sugarcoat this because let's face it, they're not going to be wanting, wanting to outwardly say yeah, there's a whole lot of yeah. stuff on the platform that there really shouldn't be. But social media is out there, is readily available for people to upload whatever they want. And with billions and billions and billions of posts and whatever else, you know, no one's sitting there listening to tech talks, making sure that we're not being radical when we're posting it. But it's easy for me to push it out to several different platforms. And if you've got everyone in the world doing that, how do you monitor it? How do you make sure, you know, it, look, it's a massive question with no clear answer, but it's just an interesting article. And it is yeah. it is food for thought, the idea that, that, that social is obviously pushing people to the extremes through their algorithms, perhaps. Yeah, I know. And I feel like something maybe should be in place for this. I know everyone should have the freedom to see what they want to see, but surely there should be something in, in, in place because what if young people are seeing this and I just feel like it can put ideas in people's heads. How do you control it though? Like yeah, who, who decides what it is? And the internet is such a big thing. Like it's just be impossible to monitor. Yeah. Ooh. And the internet is, is, is the thing that underpins the modern way we work as we were talking about with underpinned. I hadn't actually realised that was a, a pun. But there Very we go. good. <laughs> right. Surely we should start ending these things on a happier note. Come yeah, on, Yeah, that was guys. quite a depressing bit of news, that one. Freak. Every episode, <laughs> Ali has a go at me about stuff like this. No, can't you pick some happy news? Like, there was a mermaid discovered yeah, in London. what about that news London? I said the other day? Oh, I don't know. Wait, which one? Mermaids being discovered be tech news. No, but there was that tech firm who paid every single one of his employees £70,000. That's yes, interesting. that was Minimum. brilliant news. Why don't we speak about that? Okay, we, we will. We will. We'll get that one up next Good time, guys. Stay tuned. <laughs> Have a lovely weekend. I know that we're confusing the hell out of everyone. We're recording this on Wednesday. This is going out on Friday. But uh, yeah, we had a. sound so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> it's why we've think, not think, had too much think, to say <laughs> i think you need to have a, have a solution that allows you to work from anywhere in the world ali we do it's called Squadcast. Yeah. <laughs> this is amazing this is cloud technology it's fine i was actually talking about underpinned but fine all right oh. <laughs> enjoy the rest of your day and we will talk to you soon <laughs>